nobody starts out a marriage and goes, well, I, I hope this thing lasts a couple of days and then it comes apart. That's, that's okay with me. You know, people start out with the hope and dream that this is a forever thing. Welcome to Life, Love, and Family. Everybody knows we've got a divorce epidemic. I think there's an even greater concern out there, and that is loveless, empty, stuck relationships. Today, we're going to talk about how do you get unstuck, escaping the rut of a lifeless, empty marriage. Welcome into Life, Love, and Family. Hi, I'm Dr. Tim Clinton, president of the American Association of Christian Counselors. Today, we're going to talk about how there's nothing more beautiful in all the world than to be in a relationship with someone who's supposed to love you, and they actually love you. And there's nothing more painful in all the world than to be in a relationship with someone who's supposed to love you, and they don't love you. Not a fun place to be. A lot of people out there right now existing, hoping for a better day, but nothing's changing. Our special guest today is Dr. Barry Ham. He's a college professor, marriage and family therapist, author, speaker. Dr. Ham received his master's degree in psychology from Abilene Christian University. He has a marriage and family counseling degree from California State University. He also received his PhD in clinical psychology from Southern California University. Dr. Ham has dedicated his entire life, his ministry, to helping couples understand how they often, in the name of love, can begin to lose love in their relationships and what to do about it. Dr. Ham, thanks for joining us here on Life, Love, and Family. Well, thank you, Tim. It's good to be with you today. Barry, as we get started, you've seen what I'm seeing out there with couples, a lot of emptiness, loneliness, loveless relationships. There's lots of it, and I'm reminded as I sat with a couple yesterday that there's no place more lonely than in the context of a marriage that's not going well. And when you're in that, it's hard to see your way out of it. Uh, Most couples, Barry, you know this, they've tried everything. They've done the date night. They've gone to the marriage seminars. They've read the books. They've got them on the nightstand. They're trying to dial it in, but most of it doesn't work. And talk to us about what you've seen that you really believe takes the heart out of a relationship. You know, I think couples enter marriages a lot of times with unrealistic expectations They think this person that I'm marrying is going to meet all of my needs, and they get to a point where they realize that's not the case. Their expectations aren't realistic. This person can't meet all their needs, and they get discouraged, they get disillusioned, and then they find themselves thinking, what do I do with this? Do I just hunker down and somehow gut it out? Or do I say, well, this was a failed experiment and move on and try something else? And that's where I see people start to come undone and get derailed from this thing we call marriage. I think in most relationships, Barry, that it's pretty unintentional. I don't think people want to go after each other. I think some people do. But I think for most couples, they just kind of subtly, unintentionally kind of drift. And then they wake up and it's like, oof, I don't know if I like you. I don't know if I like us. I don't know 
what's happened to us. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree. N- nobody in, starts out a marriage and goes, well, I, I hope this thing lasts a couple of days and then it comes apart. That's that's okay with me. You know, people start out with the hope and dream that this is a forever thing. And I'm really convinced that people want a couple of things in a marriage. One is they want to be fully loved and they want to be fully known. And oftentimes people get to a point where they think, as a kid, as a college student, nobody's ever fully known me and fully loved me. They either know me and they run the opposite direction with their hair on fire, or they love what they think is me, but they really don't know the full picture. And so I'm hoping this marriage partner will provide both for me. And when that doesn't happen, then problems begin to show up. So, Barry, let's take the program today and let's talk to the man or the woman who has put their head down. They've tried plowing through all this. They've been fighting, hanging on. They're running out of steam. They're running out of gas. They're running out of hope. Let's start right there. Let's talk to that person. Where do you begin? How do you encourage them when they seemingly have done everything? They don't have much left to give. Looking at that kind of a situation where people, I, I like the way you put that, they're running out of steam, there's not much in the reserves to keep going. They begin to look at, how did I get in this place? This marriage started out with such great hopes, how did we get here? And I think identifying some of those things as an individual, as a couple, uh, realistically looking at what got us to this point, is the beginning of going a different direction. It's not uncommon that couples can be married for decades. They may get to their 40th or 50th wedding anniversary that they're celebrating somehow, but they're living in separate parts of the house. They're not saying a good thing to each other or about each other, and they've just gotten to that point where they've gone, you know, what do I do? Do I remain miserable or do I get a divorce? And they pose it in those two questions when really there's a third option, which is is reengaging. But there's lots of fear around that fear that this person has wounded me, intentional or not, they've wounded me, and I'm unwilling to venture back into the shark-infested pool, if you will. And coming to a point of saying, okay, are are we willing to re-engage? Are we willing to see what God might have in store for us if we do this differently? And and that's a starting point. Barry, I would agree with you, but let me stay with this just for a moment, because I want to validate some thoughts and feelings I've seen when I talk to people about re-engaging. I can see the eyes of a woman in particular say to me, Tim, but I don't want to do that anymore. Why are you asking me to give more? When does he take ownership? When does he change? When are people going to ask him to do something? Why is it always come back to me? I don't have anything left to give. You don't understand that. I don't have any of that. Barry, what do you do there? Sometimes I think there may be points in marital therapy, I think you would agree with this, that you probably can't go forward in certain situations doing marital work because you've got some individual work you've got to do. Maybe she's lost in depression. Maybe she's overwhelmed. Maybe she doesn't have anything to give right now. You've expressed a very common place where people say, I'm working on myself, I'm giving to the marriage, and he or she is doing nothing. All they do is take. Yeah. They're takers. I'm a giver. They're takers. Yep. And I think when people get to that point, they feel pretty discouraged, and they feel like there's nowhere to go. You know, I would liken this, and I, and I do this in the book, but I, I liken this to dance. In a ballroom dance setting where people are dancing, and of course, 
the thought of dancing for a lot of guys is, is a scary thought. But <laughs> but the imagery for a minute, if I'm doing a waltz with somebody and the waltz isn't going well and I don't want to waltz anymore, I mean, I'm drained and this isn't fun and I don't want to waltz anymore. And somebody says to me, well, you you got to do it differently. And I, and I don't know how to do it differently with any success. Here's what I do know. I can't make the other person do a foxtrot. If I want to do a foxtrot, I can't make them do it. But if I start foxtrotting, here's what I do know. The waltz will stop. It may be a crash and burn on the dance floor, but I can change the dynamics by ceasing to do the dance that I'm doing. And that's a starting point. Now, like I said, it, it, it sometimes it's ugly on the dance floor when that happens. But stopping the ways that we're interacting that are negative, stopping throwing the the harsh words at each other, stopping the dance that I'm doing at least forces the dynamics to do something differently. And like I said, it may be ugly at first, but that's a starting point for a lot of couples. Yeah, and and in some cases, Barry, that's the value of seeking an outside counselor, coach, mentor, pastor, someone to step into our life and to kind of help hold our arms up here for a moment. So we're not hurting each other. Uh, We're not continuing just to add hurt and insult, but we're able to back up for a moment, see things in context. And Barry, would you agree with this, that when couples often get in trouble, negative communication patterns often begin to define their relationship, not necessarily to hurt each other, but we're trying to get our point across. So we begin to criticize or do things to get the other person's attention. And we just want them to love us. But participating in that very behavior only creates like a self-fulfilling prophecy. But but you don't understand, Tim. I don't know what to say to him. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say to her. I don't know what to do. And so I push every button I can, frantically trying to bring about change. And it's only making things worse. It's like quicksand. It seems like the more I try to fight for the marriage, the worse this thing's getting. Somehow we got to stop all this craziness, this insanity, because that's all that's taking place between us. I don't call her. I don't go out to dates with her, etc., because we don't like each other, and all we do is fight. Yeah, that is such a painful place for people to be. I'm grateful, Tim, that you mentioned sometimes couples need to engage a third party, a counselor, somebody to help them, because oftentimes they've gotten to this place because they don't have the skills they need, and they don't know where to go to get them. They don't know where to start. People start ramping up. You talk about people saying and doing things just to get the other person's attention. I sat with a couple yesterday where a wife talked about bringing the garden hose into the garage. She had no intention of ending her life, but she was trying to say and do something radical to get his attention because she feels like he's not hearing her. So people ramp it up and say things and do things that really are destructive, but they want to be heard so badly they'll do some pretty crazy things. I work to get couples to help them to shift a little bit, and my concern is to get people to understand me, to get my wife or my husband to understand me, and my focus becomes so intent on being understood, I'm not listening for understanding. And when I get locked down on that, it makes communication very difficult. And, and at that point, you know, people need to learn some new skills. That, they, that Honestly, they, they show up at my counseling office with a toolbox that's got a hammer in it, and that's about it. So helping them gain some new skills, teaching them new skills, practicing new skills is a part of that process. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Our special guest again today is Dr. Barry Hamm. 
He's a marriage and family therapist out of Colorado Springs. Uh, had a brand new workout called Unstuck, Escaping the Rut of a Lifeless Marriage. Barry, breaking free. It's not easy. And you and I spend <laughs> our lives trying to figure out how couples or why couples lose at love in relationships and try to breathe new life back into them. But you've got some real practical steps that you've outlined, and I want to kind of walk through them, just have you respond to them. Sure. Uh, Let's start out with uh, owning your own stuff. I mean, the truth is it's not easy to swallow that, but you got two people who probably have developed some real unhealthy patterns of relating to each other, and it just keeps us stuck in our pain. And we've got to do a little judicious editing here. We've got to stop some of this craziness, first of all. Yeah. And what happens is people are afraid to own their own stuff because it's kind of like when you say to somebody, well, I'm sorry for my part in the argument, and you're waiting for them to take their part of, of that ownership, and they don't, and I back off and I don't want to own anything anymore. But the beginning point for me is I have to own my own mistakes. I have to own my own stuff. And here's the hard part. I have to do it whether the other person comes to the table or not. And that's difficult. But if I don't do it, my spouse and I will be locked in opposite corners of the room with our arms folded, waiting for the other one to make the move. And if I'm the one that's that's recognized, I got some ugly stuff out there I need to take ownership of. That's a beginning point for me that's important whether my spouse comes to the table or not. For some of us, Barry, we have blind spots, though. We don't necessarily see it. And then number two... Uh, we often feel afraid of taking a step because we feel if we do, we're only going to get hurt again, even more. Yeah, they'll use it against me. They'll take advantage of me. They'll throw it back in my face, all of those things. But nothing ventured? Well, you're right. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, because the reality is, in a process that's ugly, I want to do the right thing. I want to own my stuff. I want to make apologies if necessary. I want to do my part because I'm responsible to God and to myself to do the right thing, whether the other person comes to the table or not. You talk about also outdoing each other. I think that's stepping up and reaching down inside. It's kind of like whenever you're in the heat of battle, whether it's competition of any sort or what have you, when you're up against things, you got to find something special. Do you anchor this mindset about doing each other? In commitment, uh, you talk a lot about commitment-based research in the book. What does it look like? What does that mean to us well, personally? Well, you know, what that looks like in a real practical standpoint, I mean, and couples get into a place where they outdo each other in competition in negative ways. We've seen that. They try to win the argument at all costs, whatever. But in a real practical sense, couples oftentimes think a marriage is 50-50. It, it becomes what I would term a, a ledger book relationship. And couples go, well, you know, I am... I unloaded the dishwasher three times last week, and so, man, I'm not I'm not unloading it again because she hasn't been doing that, and I'm going to wait for her to do it so the dishes stack up because they're competing in that way. Outdoing each other in a healthy way is how do I outlove my spouse? If I did unloaded the dishwasher three times this week, what if I do it four? What if I do it five? What if I do things to outlove my spouse? and then compete in a whole whole different kind of way than we're used to competing in. And so that's the kind of level of commitment about loving that I encourage couples to do because it really has benefit. I mean, people respond to that. We know that when we're trying to compete with our spouse in negative ways, 
they will dig in their heels to win at all costs. And, and it's not a pretty sight. When they win or when I win, nobody wins. Well, I'll tell you, though, it's, it's hard to let your defense come down, to come back to the table, because there is so much woundedness, Barry, and fear. <laughs> Coaching people into these steps, because you are right. You've got to go there. You've got to move in this direction, or you will never see change. But it's so tough, especially when you don't like each other. It's tough when I don't feel loved. It's tough when I ha- I don't feel loving feelings anymore because it's gotten so ugly. It's tough. But I remind, I'm reminded that I am called to a place of commitment. You know, I remember years ago hearing how sin was defined as missing the mark. And so certainly if I divorce my spouse... For just because I, you know it's too hard, I, I'm missing the mark. But I think when people stay in a marriage and hunker down in the corner and aren't committed to each other and just they endure and they think they're going to get brownie points for enduring, God has called me not to endure. He's called me to a level of commitment that, as you said, it, it's hard. And yet I'm guaranteed if I just endure, I'm guaranteed this doesn't get any better. But if I'm called to engage at a level of commitment, there's an opportunity afforded me that this has possibilities. Even though it may be a slim hope, there is a level of hope that begins to emerge as I take these concrete kinds of steps. Our special guest again today is Dr. Barry Ham. He's a marriage and family therapist. Uh, we're talking about uh, how to get unstuck in one of those marriages. You know what I'm talking about, escaping the rut of a lifeless marriage. And Barry, um, you used the metaphor in here of learning a new dance, and you referenced it a little bit earlier, but you are right. We're trying now to create a new rhythm together. It's not easy, but we've got to get in this direction. And yes, we know that we need time together. One of the interesting concepts I've worked with for couples through the years is I actually learned it from helping overcome defiance in children. Uh, Russell Barclay, in his work, found that if a parent would spend 20 minutes a day of command-free special time with a child, the heart of his change therapy program was that very encounter that if I could participate in my son or daughter's life, not giving commands, but being a part of their life, not condoning things that I don't condone, but the presence factor, the connectivity that started to take place, the hanging out, it did something to the relationship and began to change this attitude of defiance in the child. I learned also in couples when they're in pain that they have no time, no connection, no emotional strands of connectedness. And somehow, Barry, you've got to get that piece going again. Time is a crucial factor here, the right kind of time, hanging out together, pressing in in a new way, learning a new rhythm. And I appreciate what you said about time and about being present because that is an important part of changing the dance. I mean, a lot of this comes under... Uh, the idea of treasuring, the idea of, you know, what I treasure with my actions, with my time, that becomes the things that my heart wraps around. Making time to spend with my spouse, to be present with my spouse. And one thing, Tim, that I see in couples frequently is there's a negative assumption that begins their interactions. I'm thoroughly convinced that every action I, I have with anybody begins with an assumption. If my wife comes in today and, and kicks me, then obviously that's a negative thing. But if she comes in the door and I think, you know, 
She kicked me yesterday. She's probably going to kick me today. I brace myself. I begin that interaction before she's done anything, assuming the worst. Mm. Couples do this frequently. I had a couple one time where the wife came in the door. She saw a, a strange look on her husband's face. She thought, all this is inside her head. She thought, you know what? This is going to be ugly. I don't feel like fighting with him today. I don't know what's going on. And she goes in the other room. Doesn't say a thing. The husband goes, I don't know what that was about, but I'm not in the mood to fight with her. So he goes in a different room, and they don't talk for two days, all because of a negative assumption based upon a raised eyebrow. We have to change how we begin our interactions, and we have a great deal of control of that, and that is a part of changing the dance. Barry, I've heard it said that negative communication Negative interactions have far more predictive value than positive ones. Some have said as many as 5 to 20 positives to counteract one negative interaction. But most couples who are in trouble, all their interactions are negative. And so that means they got a lot of positives they got to do to overcome all that. You've got to shut down this negative pattern, these negative interactions. Somehow put a stake in the ground, put a flag up and surrender uh, this battle stuff. Stop. Stop it. Because you're killing each other. Yeah. No wonder you don't want to be around each other. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct. Those negatives, they get to the point where I am exhausted. I don't want to engage in the negatives. As a matter of fact, there might be some positives, but I'm not willing to take the risk. That's where I begin to go hide in the opposite end of the house. As you mentioned earlier, there's times where couples, I strongly encourage them to get into counseling because... Again, they need somebody to help them raise the flag to stop those interactions and learn new ways to interact, to find the positives. And that's hard. You're sitting down with this spouse who's hurt you ten times in the last week. Your heart and your mind aren't real open to listening. They could utter positive things to you, and you might not hear them because you're so entrenched in the negative things they said yesterday. Coming to the table with some help, to learn some new tools is a part of changing those interactions. Word of encouragement to those who are out there and they, they say, that's, that's us. That's where we're at. <laughs> you guys have got it. It's interesting. Research shows that couples will actually take the first step and seek out some type of help. We want to encourage that, by the way. Reach out to somebody. If you're stuck, reach out to somebody. Take these principles that we've been sharing today and begin to just slowly allow them to course through your relationship. I've found that some of the most healthy, strong marriages that I know today have been through the deepest waters. Absolutely. There's a chapter in this book where I interviewed couples that have been married 30 years or longer, and people sometimes assume, they say, well, those are people that just kind of cruised along and it was easy. Oh, they weren't. These were couples who, who battled affairs, who dealt with abortion, who dealt with a number of things that threatened the existence of their relationship, but they learned the skills, they got the help, they overcame, and they are far, far stronger for it and, and had great advice to offer. Hey, Barry, we're out of time, but I, I want to toss it back to you just for a second. Speak again to those who are out there. Maybe their tears running down their face or deep anger in their heart. What do you say? Hey, Tim, We've just been praying that God would do something special in our home, our, our marriage. Yeah. You know what I would say, and I, and I don't want this to sound trite or, or cliché, but truly, we serve a God who is way bigger than me, 
than our problems in the marriage. And the God of the universe wants to come and be a part of our lives and a part of our marriages. When I engage him in my processes, things can change. Again, today has been Dr. Barry Ham, marriage and family therapist, author, speaker, man who understands what it's like to be alone in a marriage, how to find hope, maybe a better day. Let me encourage you, if that's your story, I doubt you're going to find that freedom apart from your relationship with God. I know this, if you'll press into him, he understands the brokenness. He's the God of Hosea. He knows what it's like to feel betrayed to not be loved. He wants you to know that he is close to your heart, even if you feel, and maybe you are very alone right now. Press into him, and then would you do me a favor? Think about reaching out to someone else and asking them to speak into your life. Find your pastor, go to a counselor, find a coach, somebody to help you navigate this white water in your life. I think if you do that, God may help you rewrite that story. And our prayer is that God would fill your heart with love, that your relationship would come back together again, that you'd be free and you know what it means to love and be loved. By the way, that's why we come to you every day on this station at this time, because we care about you and your relationships, your relationship with God, your relationship with others in your life. If we can be of help to you, if we can direct you to Dr. Ham and his ministry, help you with resources, just come and visit our website lifeloveandfamily.net. Also, feel free to call us. Our toll-free number, 855-455-3264. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love for you to visit our Facebook page. 
Let us know you're out there. Let us know what you like about Life, Love, and Family, what you want to hear more of. We really do love being a part of your life. I'm Dr. Tim Clinton for Life, Love, and Family. Thanks for listening. Life, Love, and Family. America's number one Christian residential treatment program, Honey Lake Clinic, specializing in addiction, depression, anxiety, bipolar, PTSD, staffed by nationally recognized psychiatrists and psychologists, a team of MDs and 24-hour nursing care, a 600-acre scenic sanctuary of unmatched beauty, Honey Lake Clinic. Most insurance accepted, scholarships available. Phone 844-747-7772, online, honeylake.clinic.